0: Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at our supporting sponsor, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, Mid-October here, October 13th, 2022. Really feeling like fall out there. Love it. Uh, I've got uh, three studies to talk about today. Uh, and the first one, I'm only going to do kind of an abstract level discussion because it's a CAR-T study. Um, it's a unique CAR T uh, study, but not necessarily my expertise, but I think it's worth talking about. And the the trial is, uh, or it's about the trial is the CALM study. It's about UCAR T, Ucart, Ucart nineteen, Ucart, Ucart nineteen, Ucart nineteen, UCART 19 uh, which is an allogeneic anti CD nineteen CAR T product, and this is in relapse refractory um, B cell ALL. Uh, it's a phase one study. Uh, trying to find the dose. Um, so it's an allogeneic product engineered uh, so that the uh, these T cells uh, target CD19, which is expressed on on the leukemia cells and uh, and healthy B cells as well. This is not an autologous product, like Tisangelic Lucell or axi-captogene lysocell, you know, those products that are already on the market that are uh, derived from the patient's own T cells. And when you go through those studies, you see that um, the response rate, this is kind of how these studies are written, the response rate or complete remission rate can be very different if you do the entire patient population, you know, enrolled or screened versus the patient population who had leukopheresis versus the patient population who actually went through and had the manufacturing product done and prepared and then those who got the drugs. You'll see the response rate kind of artificially improve as you weed out the folks who didn't get the product. They may not have gotten the product for two big reasons. One, their disease was too aggressive and uh, they progressed before they could get the product. You know, they died before they got the product. The other would be manufacturing failures because this is, uh, you know, highly technical stuff to do in the lab. Um, So an allogeneic product, in this case, uh, this UCAR T19 is derived from healthy donors. It would be an off-the-shelf product, right? It would be, you don't have to leukophorese people. Uh, you can give them their lymphodepleting therapy and then give them this product. That's the advantage is you get it faster. No treatment delays. The disadvantage, though, is because there's somebody else's T cell. They may not be as active as anti-CD19 targets. So this is a phase one open label study, blah, 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 right? Uh, relapse refractory B cell lymphoma. Morphological relapse, but minimum residual disease. Exhausted all standard treatment options. So would have had blenitumumab. Uh, they got lymphodepleting therapy with fludarabine. Hey, it's good if you can get it. Cyclophosphamide plus or minus map. Dose findings, so I won't go into the doses here. Small study, 25 patients, meeting age 37. Um, so most of these folks are between 28 uh, and 45 years old. So a younger patient population, you know, you got some cytokine release syndrome, but, uh, you know, the, the overall response rate here is 48%, which I assume is complete remission or complete uh, complete remission with incomplete count recovery. Um 48% not bad, right? Certainly there's disease activity. If you look at that to brexycaptogene, autolucel, T-cardis, which is approved for relapsed refractory ALL, uh, the remission rate there was 35%, so it seems comparable. Now you're doing that cross-trial comparison. Now if you look at it compared to Tis angelic lucel, or Tis cell, chemriah, um, that response rate was 81%. Um, so, and then there's another CAR T product uh, that had a response rate of uh, 69% in this patient population, roughly. So, eh, modest response, maybe not something that you would prefer to do. Just based on this, I don't know if we'll ever get a head-to-head comparison. But certainly, there is activity, and the advantage of this, were this to come to market again, would be uh, a lack of treatment delay. Could get the drug faster. Okay, drastically changing gears now to a smaller, uh, a smaller study. Uh, and this is published uh, in Cancer, and this is comparing a prepotent to desloratadine for EGFR TKI induced puritis. Uh, a randomized phase two uh, study. So again, it's a, it's a randomized phase two study, smaller study, um, but it's highlighting um, you know maybe an underappreciated side effect of EGFR targeting tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which is itching puritis. And that, when I first saw this, I was like, a prepotent for itching? Well there's actually like another publication from like twenty fourteen looking at this. So this is a, a randomized study. Again, a prepotent versus desloratidine. It is uh, fairly well done. It's a you know placebo controlled study. So patients got either a prepotent, um, 125 on day one, then 80 on day three or day five, which is different than what we typically do for nausea volume, which is one twenty five on day one, then 80 by mouth on days two and three, right? So they're stretching that out over five days. So they got a prepotent for those three doses over five days, or placebo desloratadine for a month, or they got desloratadine for a month, five milligram standard dose of um, uh, I don't know the brand name of desloratadine. I take loratadine quite a bit actually. Uh, or they got placebo a prepotent on days one, three, and five, all right? And so their primary outcome is uh, response rate, which they define as patients who had a visual analog score reduction of more than 50% or equal to 50% compared to the baseline. So they're basically on a scale of one to 10, how itchy are you, all right, at baseline? And that number go down by 50%, that's a response. Uh, They don't cite where this is, or if this is a validated thing. So I think they just kind of made this up, but hey, all right, they're asking a good question, right? Uh, What is a good way to treat itching here? Um, and, you know, what they, what they show is that there was a... Uh, oh, by the way, most of these folks were on JafitNib. This is a Chinese study. Most of the folks on JafitNib uh, and then Erlotinib. Um, only 11 patients in this study were on Osimertinib probably the most common uh, EGFRT guy that we would use here in the state. 65 patients in, in, in both arms, I forgot to say that. So decent sample size, more than 100 patients for a Phase two study. Uh, pretty interesting. Uh, so what they, what they show here is that uh, basically they're looking at response rates, uh, as far as how itchy are you, uh, at one week, two week, three week, and four week. And so there's a statistically significant difference in overall response rate favoring a prepotent at one week and at three weeks, but not at two weeks or four weeks. So there's you know, at one week, maybe that makes the most sense because you've just had a week of a prep tent on, on, and then nothing else afterwards. So maybe that kind of makes, uh, makes sense. And the deseratidine group has more response rates. If you look at the response rate of editing from weeks one to two to three to four, it goes from about 23% to about 42% to about 45%, to, uh, above 50%. So you know, it goes up over time as you continue to take desloratadine. Of course, my big concern, which which they don't comment a ton on in this paper, is that a preputin is a a moderate three or four inhibitors, and these tyrosine kinase inhibitors are three or four substrates. So you could increase the toxicity even uh, over time. With this certainly you see that a preputin has some effect. Desloratadine has some effect too. Um, so I'm not sure that one is necessarily better than the other. When you consider the drug interaction potential of uh, of a preptent, as well as the expense of a preptent compared to, um, you know, a, 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 you know, a generic antihistamine. Now, I do want to comment because this is a common thing that is done in, in these types of studies. They're measuring itchiness, itchiness, and they're using response rate, which is a dichotomous value, right? You either had a response or you didn't, and. If there is really a robust difference between a prepotent and desaratine, you would see not only a significant improvement in response rate, but also a significant improvement in just the actual numbers of the itchiness, the visual analog scale. At baseline, the itchiness scale was 6.35 for a prepotent compared to 5.94 with desaratine. So the prepotent folks had higher itchiness scores at baseline, so it'd be easier in theory to show a 50% reduction. It's easier to go from 10 to 5 than it is to go from two to one, for example, on an itchiness scale. And by the end of four weeks, the dust folks actually had a median itchy score that was 2.5 compared to three for a preptent. And none of these are significant when you look at the actual VAS score. Um, so to me, response rates, maybe not the best uh, measure here of, of how well these drugs work. Um, as far as reduction of puritis, the, the, both drugs seem to work. For this, a prepotent seems... We can't even get folks to, to pay for their a prepotent, for their co-pays, for pays uh, for chemotherapy-induced vomiting. So for itching, I would favor deseradine, Uh or even just, you know, hydroxyzine. And in fact, one time, um, this came up on rounds, talking about hydroxyzine is always used a lot of the time for um, for itching. And I was like, yeah, I wonder if it's really that much better than other, like diphenhydramine or chlorpheniramine other you know, early generation antihistamines for itchiness. And I went, you know, I I pubmedded hydroxyzine and then limited my results to clinical trial and then went and then I reversed the date, right? So the oldest were first. And right away you find a study looking at itchiness of diphenhydramine and uh, hydroxine and some other anti uh, antihistamine. And sure enough, hydroxine was better for itching than than diphenhydramine or these other antihistamines. So, uh, Mm -hmm verified verified so you could use hydroxine too i would say uh would get uh, some more sedation though all right the next thing to talk about everyone's talking about this and i don't know that i have a lot more to offer on this but i do want to share some thoughts that some other people have said uh that are smarter than me on this because that is important i think for everyone who works oncology to be aware of this uh because um patients will be talking about this and this is the the nordic uh study nordic Uh, with two C's, N-O-R-D-I-C-C study group. So this is looking at colonoscopy and what primary outcomes were uh, colon cancer and death, right? Was it death from colon cancer or death from any cause? Um, Certainly uh, they were both measured. I can't remember, one of those was a primary endpoint along with colon cancer. So just as a uh, quickly summarizing, so we have, we have good data from the late 70s, early 80s that colon cancer screening with uh, fecal occult blood testing, or maybe it's immunohistochemistry, I can't remember, but basically looking for blood in the stool, sigmoidoscopy, as far as randomized controlled clinical trials, do two things. They decrease the rates of colon cancer and they improve survival, okay? And the reason that these decrease the rates of actually having the cancer as opposed to, say, Breast cancer screen, which doesn't decrease the breast cancer rate, stays the same, or prostate cancer screen, which actually increased the prostate cancer rate, because when you look for something, you find it. The reason that this is true for colon cancer is that when you you'll see these precancerous lesions, these adenomas, that if left alone, over a period of years, have a high likelihood of becoming cancer. So you can find precancerous lesions, you can intervene before they become cancer. It's not just finding cancer early; it's finding something that is not yet cancer. Okay. Uh, and that's why colon cancer screening has been very effective at just decreasing the incidence of the cancer from happening in the first place and death from cancer. Okay. Um, and then the data from colonoscopies here is mostly cohort data. I guess we don't have really great randomized clinical trials, uh, as stated in an accompanying editorial by uh, Dominitz and Robertson. This was published uh, this week in the New England Journal of Medicine, the editorial and the, the Nordic trial. So the way this study worked is, uh, this was uh, Norway, um, Sweden, and Poland. Most of the folks were in Poland in the study, and uh, they say that they they were offered, they were invited to screen for colon cancer or no screening. And these were folks uh, 55 to 64, I think, and they introduced this in areas where colonoscopy screening was not routine, Okay, so that the folks who were not randomized to be invited to screen would not have otherwise been getting screened, right? So it seems, seems, seems well done. You know, it's a large study. You've got 84,000 people uh, in the study, uh, 54,000 of them from Poland. So most of the folks are from Poland, all right? And what they find is um, people are saying it's a negative study because it didn't show an improvement, um, no significant improvement in death from colon cancer or any cause death, which, of course, we would love to see, uh, but it was positive that it did show a decreased rate of colon cancer in those who were invited to screen, not just got screened, but were invited to screen. And only 42% of those folks who were given the invitation for a colonoscopy actually received it. Okay, so it was pretty low uptake of of actual screening there. And if you do the pr- if you just look at the folks who got screened, they did see those survival differences as you would expect. But as a population-based thing if you have a great intervention like colonoscopy. If people don't do it, it's not gonna be helpful. So looking at the intent to treat analysis and how they actually did it has more insight into how maybe how much we uh, we should push for colonoscopy as opposed to maybe less invasive colon cancer screening techniques. One thing that's really interesting Uh, And makes sense when you think about it is those folks invited to screen, you actually see more colon cancer right away because you're looking for something that you find it. But then over time, there is less colon cancer in those folks who who are invited to screen because you are able to find those precancerous lesions and remove them during the colonoscopy. Uh, before they would become cancer. So you see the curves kind of go up as far as incidence of colon cancer in the, sc- in the invitation to screening, and then they make a sharp turn to the right. Not a sharp turn, but they turn right and really kind of plateau, whereas there's a, a, a steeper slope on those not invited to screen as far as the incidence of colon cancer. All right. So a lot of folks have said maybe, maybe we should, or you know, are asking the question, is colonoscopy really that effective? Uh, and I think it's fair to, to ask is colonoscopy as effective now when maybe we have better surgery we have better access to colonoscopies at least here in the states uh you can trip on the street outside the hospital and, and get a colonoscopy um you know everyone you know it's a money maker for these gi physicians i think so colonoscopy is very very as a procedure very easy to get here in the state so it's able to happen pretty fast able to get surgery we have probably better drugs so maybe in this era colonoscopy is not as effective now I'll point out some some really thought-provoking things from the editorial here. Um, So, yeah, we get a a relative 18% decrease in the rate of colon cancer. That's small, but it's good, right? Less colon cancer is good. And this is what I haven't seen people say is because there's less colon cancer with screening, even if there's not survival benefit, there's less surgical morbidity, there's less surgery, there's less chemotherapy, uh, and there's less peripheral neuropathy from oxaliplatin and stuff like that. So there is certainly benefit to a population and to a payer uh, and to a society by decreasing the rate of colon cancer, even if it doesn't change survival. There is benefit to that that should not be questioned, in my opinion. All right, some other things. The participation rate in, in actually receiving the colonoscopy was 42%, and some of the, the colonoscopy or uh, in some of the sigmoidoscopy studies, that rate of actually following through with the intervention was 58 to 70 to 87 percent, and by the way, sigmoidoscopy is just is is uh, not doing as much of the entire colon as colonoscopy, which does the whole thing. Um, uh, another uh, purported um, reason to maybe not fully evaluate this yet is that some of the benefits from overall survival may have to wait later. For this was a 10-year follow-up. If you did a 3-year follow-up, you wouldn't have seen an improvement in the rates of colon cancer, you see it at 10 years. So maybe at 15 years when they plan to do another analysis, we will see an improvement in maybe death from colon cancer because you know, if your colonoscopy is clean, I say come back in 10 years, right? Oftentimes if you have no other risk factor. So it makes sense that you'd have to wait longer to see actual benefit in decreasing maybe death from colon cancer. Um, this is something I didn't know as a pharmacist is that colonoscopy is somewhat operator dependent. And there's actually a metric that is looked at to see are you getting good quality endoscopy in these and apparently that is a an adenoma detection so you're detecting these polyps i guess 25 percent of the time in a in a in an aged population you should see you know one in four times you should find something uh in these folks because they're pretty common and that um almost a third of the folks in this study 29 percent were below that threshold so maybe if they don't do colonoscopies as much in Poland or Norway or Sweden, they're not as good perhaps. And therefore you're not going to find as many early cancerous lesions. Um, And so that might negate uh, or or, uh, blunt some of the effect of that. Um, It's also possible that because you're doing 55 to 64, you're in a fairly tight window of patients that maybe there's more benefit if you did folks who are in their 50s. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Um, this calls into question the routine use of colonoscopy for screening. It doesn't refute everything that's happened. I don't think it's practice changing. I think it probably uh, calls for a a similar study. Uh, I don't know how you're going to do that because that's already kind of our standard of care is to do screening here. Um, I think it would be reasonable to to randomize folks uh, here in in the states or uh, something like that to either colonoscopy screening or less invasive colonoscopy screening like just fecal cold blood Uh, Something like that would be interesting uh, to do. Uh, But, you know, I'm still going to get a colonoscopy. I'm almost 40. Um, You know, most of our data is uh, starting at age 50. Uh, We have some guidelines here in America to start screening at 45, not based off of evidence that that is actually better, but based off the trend of, of younger and younger patients being diagnosed before the age of 50. Uh, with colorectal cancer. So uh, certainly food for thought. Uh, I'm not an epidemiologist uh, or a public health expert uh, who probably are the folks we should listen to for something like this, but I think it's good if an intervention uh, decreases the rate of cancer. That's my hot take. All right. Thank you for listening so much. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at farmd. You can follow the podcast uh, on both Twitter and Instagram at OncofarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.